That's uh, one step closer to evangelism right there. If he can have 10 songs and do that with 10 songs, churches across this country will have him come preach. I know that it sounds shallow, but that's where we're at really, isn't it? But the truth is a preacher that can sing and play and doesn't have to depend on somebody else to play for him, man, churches are just hungry for some good, solid Christian music. Man, he could go and preach anywhere in this country, and people would be glad to have him if he can do that. Now, I know you say, well, it's the preaching should matter. It does matter to the churches. It matters. But I'll tell you what, man, I think to myself, man, if I'd have only learned to play the piano, I'd be rich. No, I <clears throat> no that's awesome, isn't it? I don't know about you, but that's a feat right there. That's something amazing. Now, I know he, he doesn't like to do that right there, but, boy, he did a great job. And boy, I tell you what, we have some tremendous, tremendous music here. 
And we thank the Lord for that. Our choir did such a good job today. Such a good job. Man, you talk about, I know there's a number of them still out sick and all, but man, the power. I just was so encouraged as I heard them singing that song out. And it just, you could feel that they meant it. Boy, we've got to mean what we're singing and mean what we're preaching. And there ought to be a passion about the things we say and do. There ought to be. That was great. That's good stuff right there. I was fired up. I'm ready to go. So let's go. No. <laughs> All right. Take your Bible. Turn over to the book of Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14 today. We're going to read a, just a passion of a, a portion of the scripture there. Passion. A portion of the scripture there in chapter 14. In chapter 1, uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 6 to begin with. And then we're going to kind of, I'm going to kind of summarize the chapter a little bit. We're going to look at it, and we'll kind of come down to the end of it, and we're going to make an application and uh, see what the Lord has in store for us there. Chapter 14, the book of Luke, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> and it came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. Behold, there was a certain man before him which, <clears throat> excuse me, had the dropsy. Now that isn't the dropsy that you and I have. Drop our keys, drop our phones. Uh, we'll explain what that means here in just a moment. And Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, <clears throat> Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. And he took him and healed him and let him go. And answered them, saying, Which of you shall have an ass or an axe fall, uh, ox fallen into a pit, and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again to these things. Now, it appears to me, based on how we see it worded early on in the chapter, that Jesus was invited to this feast in order to trap him somehow. It seems that in many cases, wherever Jesus did attend, wherever he did go, whatever he did do, people were always trying to catch him, trap him, see him in some discretion or some compromise. In the crowd in which he now finds himself, there's a man with dropsy. Dropsy was the general term for a number of diseases. Mostly, it had to do with the heart, the liver, the kidneys, or the brain, and it caused water to collect in the cavities of the body on its surface or even in the limbs. So it was retaining water, but sometimes in the organs even. And, and so it was a very serious illness. And the trap seems to be twofold. Could Jesus heal this man? And if he did heal him, would he do so on the Sabbath day? Now, the law had pointed out the need, of, of course, to observe the Sabbath. We won't argue that or debate it. It's quite clear. It's scriptural. However, the Pharisees here had insisted on a most very rigid observance of the Sabbath laws. And yet they practiced the opposite themselves. Was it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Of course it was lawful. See, these Pharisees, these Doctors of the law seemed to somehow describe this healing as a work. They couldn't separate the two. Jesus heals, and then the Bible tells us that he basically turns the tables on them. 
In verses 5 and 6 we read, Which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? They could not answer him again these things. They had no answer for that. Jesus says, now wait a second, before you start casting stones at me for healing on the Sabbath day, wouldn't you rescue your own ox or your ass out of a pit? Well, of course, the answer was, well, yeah. Then we come to verses 7 through 15, and with their scheme being dismantled before their very eyes, Jesus, wrecking it all, he then continues by pointing out their rudeness, their pride, their arrogance. He says that when you guys attend a feast, one like this even, you, you find yourselves here and you're seeking the most honorable positions. You, you scramble about, you try to manipulate your way into those places, you try to find yourself at the head of the table, so to speak. You, he, he must have seen them early on as he stood there, and he must have almost found it to be disgustingly, uh, just, just, just uh, disgusting in his own mind as he watched them plotting and scheming to get those top seats, those high seats, as the Bible calls them. They're pushing their way around. They're moving into those, their position. His advice, you'd be better off to take the lower seat. And in the event that somehow the, 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 the uh, host of the event would come to you and say, boy, we would like you to take a more position, a higher position of honor here. But they're forcing themselves into the high position. And he says, boy, that could be a real problem and it could be extremely embarrassing because he may come to you and say, oh, by the way, can you move down to a lower seat because I want to lift somebody else up to the higher. They would have never dreamed that as they looked upon themselves, that they would be worthy of anything less than the highest place. But Jesus says, boy, it would be better to be honored before this crowd than to be dishonored. And you ought to be careful how you see yourself in light of others. He says in Luke 14, 11, for whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. He also goes on to let them know and remind them, you know what, when you start inviting people to these feasts, these great meals, you know what you might want to do? Instead of inviting all the rich people, instead of inviting all the people that, that are of position, and prominence. Why don't you go out into the highways? Why don't you go outside of here and why don't you just invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind? Invite somebody that just can't pay you back. Don't invite somebody that can then invite you to an event. They can, on one hand, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. He says, no, go out there and invite somebody that has nothing to give you, that can't repay in any sense or of the, uh, any sense of the word. He says, and you know what will happen? You'll be repaid in eternity. The Bible says then that one of the guests then responds. And in verse 15, he responds by saying, and when one of them that sat at meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, 
Blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And that is true, right? But it seems to me, based on the scriptures and the context, that the man likely saw himself and those in attendance as deserving to eat bread in the kingdom of God. And of course, the Pharisees and the doctors of the law, they would sit at the table in heaven one day. That's without question, right? I mean, they have studied the scriptures. They they themselves are the example to the crowd of what a Christian ought to be, so to speak. Of course, we'll be there. Then we come to verses 16 through 24. And Jesus, seeing that the man needed a very sharp lesson, he He begins to tell him a story. And this story that he begins to tell him was designed to emphasize the likelihood. Now listen, this is important. To emphasize the likelihood that the the majority of those that were gathered that day at that particular feast, although they had the greatest of opportunities in the world to enjoy the glory of the kingdom of God one day, knowing as much as they knew Thanks to their own folly, most of them would never make it. And that's the purpose. That's why Jesus now shares this particular parable or story that he does. He says that a certain man made a great supper and invited many people to come. I mean, they were sitting at a supper, right? He's now looking at the crowd and he's saying, there was a certain man who made a great supper and invited many people here. And he invited guests. Those guests... The Lord Jesus is allowing to represent the Jews. The Jews to whom God had made many advances. The the, the Jews who God had sought over and over and over again. The, the, The Jews that Jesus had tried to remind that he was Messiah and that he was their only way, truth, and life. That they needed to trust and depend on him. Oh boy, in their own day even, these men had received so many invitations from John the Baptist, so many from Jesus himself. He talks about the fact that supper time came. And although that host was extremely generous with his offer, he he sent his servants out and yet still no guests came. I mean, the gospel feast was spread is the implication. The invitation was still good. The, the hour had come, and yet the Jews, although they were urged to be a part of it, although they were urged to come and to participate, to be a part of the kingdom of God even, instead they offered excuse after excuse after excuse for not coming. <laughs> the excuses, you say, what were they? Well, here, let me break them down real simply. Number one, one that was asked was too big. I mean, they had just purchased land and they couldn't get away. I mean, they obviously had money and they had uh, uh, material goods. Uh, There was just too much in their possession. They could not get away at that point. I just purchased some land. I've got to go there. I've got to see the land. Oh, so you've purchased it sight unseen. I don't know if that's good business. But that was the excuse. He was just too big. On the other hand, there was another who was too busy. He had purchased five yoke of oxen. He had to go try the oxen out. Huh. Too busy. And then there was the last who was to keep along with the bees. He was too blissful. 
You say, why? He had just married a new wife. He couldn't be bothered with a feast. He was a newlywed. He had a wife now. So we have these excuses, one being too big, the other being too busy, the other being too blissful. Hey, these, these excuses represent excuses of all kinds that keep people from coming to Jesus Christ. Following the excuses, we are given this, we read in Luke chapter 14, now look at verse 21. He says now in chapter 14, verse 21, so that servant come, uh, came and shoot his Lord these things. He had sent him out to gather folks for the feast, for the big supper, and everybody's giving excuses. And so he returns now to his master, and the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it's done as thou hast commanded, and yet there is rooms. And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of these men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. The master of the house had opened up his home for a great supper to all that would come. But still there was room. He now sends his servant out and says, listen, I've sent you out, and now I'm sending you to the highways and hedges. You have invited people. You've told them about it. You've tried to get them here in that sense. But now I want you to go into the highways and hedges and beg them to come. Don't just invite them. Beg them. And then Jesus stands up in the midst of this crowd as he gazes across the faces of these men, he says, For I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Now I know he's talking about the future, but can I tell you, I believe that as he gazed into the eyes of those men that day, he made it perfectly clear You who sit here today, who believe yourselves most worthy of honor in the kingdom because of your rudeness, your pride, your arrogance, and your excuses, it will exclude you one day from the kingdom. It's almost as if Nathan is standing before David and he says, Thou art the man. It's almost as if Jesus has now stood behind that table and made his way to his feet and as he gazed across the crowd and said, No, thou art the man. And then Jesus departs and he leaves the supper. And then we arrive at Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Now I want to read verses 25 through 35 because it is in those verses that we're going to eventually find our message today. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whatsoever doth not, and whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth down, not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest happily after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king? Sitteth not down first, and consulteth whether he is able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand. Or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an embassage and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land or yet for the gung hill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Father, bless us in our time together. May you be glorified in our service today. May, Father, hearts be stirred, and may we recognize and realize the need, Father, just to, to count the cost. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. The crowd awaited him outside. And we see there in verse 25, there went a great multitude with him, and he turned, and he said to them. So now he's moved out of the, the supper the feast, and he's now in the midst of a crowd. So now, in the midst of this crowd, he says, if any man come after me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now listen, one for, love for one's flesh and blood, that's proper, it's normal. And it's good. That's not what Christ is saying. He's not saying you need to hate your mother because she's just a bad person. That's not the emphasis here. That's not what his intention is at all. He's not downplaying the need to be a good mom, a good dad, to love your wife, your husband, your family. That's not what he's downplaying. What he is doing, however, is he's trying to emphasize the need to love him more. And that's what he's saying. To become a disciple of mine, a person must love the Lord more than he loves himself. And then he goes on to speak of the cross. You think about that. In those days, of course, we know that the cross pictured the, uh, the Roman means by which they, they, they punished offenders. They'd place somebody on a cross and crucify them. Ultimately, Jesus himself would end up there. And he says, you must take up your cross and I'm sure that presented a very vivid image to them of, 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 of just a lot of things. <laughs> and here's Jesus now speaking to them. And as he gazes again upon the faces of this crowd, he's trying to tell them and he's trying to let them know that following him is no bed of roses. He then admonishes them to count the cost. We've already seen that these Pharisees and these doctors of the law had, had felt themselves to be worthy of all honor. And yet he's saying, no, you missed the point. Your pride, your arrogancy, you, you, you even assume so much. But the fact is, is that you are unwilling to accept me. You're unwilling to follow me. Don't you realize there's more to it than you simply choosing that you are worthy? I have to see you worthy. 
And he turns to these multitudes and he kind of continues in a sense to say, wait a second, there's a price to pay. The Pharisees think they've paid the price. They've gone to their schools. They've, they've done the work. They've been involved in so many things. They're teaching and training others. The Old Testament law. But the fact is, those things in and of themselves are not what's going to make you worthy. It's not by your deeds. But I promise you this, he says, they're paying a price, but it's only a price so that they can be exalted in this life. What about the next? If you're going to be my disciple, you're going to have to follow me. And can I tell you, he says, there is a price to pay. It's not going to be a bed of roses. And as you begin to consider me and your relationship to me, your walk with me, you must count the cost. And so he begins to express to them where the cost lies. Look in verse 28 through 30. Everything in life has a price, doesn't it? Outside of salvation that is free, a gift that is free of the Lord, the truth is, is everything else comes with a price. You don't drive down to a drive through restaurant and go through the drive through and get food without a price. You don't buy a house without it costing a price. You don't get a car without it costing something. And the truth is you say, well, somebody gave me something. Yeah, I know. And in a sense, if we're very few people give things away without a price tag. Even if they gave it to you, they gave it to you with a, a, some, something else in mind. Somebody, you know, a rep, a rep from maybe some company comes to your office and hands you something nice and says, here, it's a gift from us. They're not just giving that to you out of the kindness of their heart. They're giving that to you because they want to gain something. There's a price to everything. And now Jesus begins to explain the price. Notice what he says in chapter 14, verse 28. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to find, finish it? Lest happily after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that, he be, uh, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. If we are going to be Christ's disciples, we, need to, we, we as believers must count the cost of building. You say, what do you mean? Well, in this particular passage, somebody is building a physical structure. In this passage, you'll notice something very interesting. They began that work. They, they, he says, you, you know, you got to sit down. you got to count the cost, whether you have a sufficient to finish it. You don't start it unless you know you can get to the end of the project. He says, why? Lest happily. I find that phrase interesting to me. Lest happily. Now, if you take lest happily and you remove what's between the two commas after he hath laid the foundation, take that out. Lest happily... And, and wait a second, after he laid the foundation is not able to finish it. Take that out. Lest happily all that behold it begin to mock him. That's what he's saying here. 
He's saying you better count the cost before you start building something because if you start and you can't get to the end, there's going to be a lot of people happy that you couldn't finish it. You say, why would somebody be happy? Oh, you mean you don't take joy in people's tragedies? I mean, you know for sure you should be playing first team on the football team and all of a sudden the first teamer gets hurt and you're like, You won't say that out loud, but you're thinking, yes, finally my chance. We watch people succeed in life, and their things are going well, and we just have to think they must be compromising because I'm not, and I'm not succeeding. And then we see them fall on their face, and we go down deep. Hmm. <laughs> I knew it. No, well, nobody in here has ever thought those things. We've never even gone there, Right? But he's pointing out again that this is how it works in business. This is how it works in life. The truth is, is that people will always find joy in your sorrow and your failures. That's just a reality of life. Why are we always so surprised when people are so happy when we fail? He says that's how it works. And he says, you know what you have to do in order for that not to happen? You better count the cost. You better think things through. You better weigh it all out. You better put it on this side of the scale and this side of the scale. Make sure that if you start here, you can finish here. Whether it's school, whether it's business, whether it's a building, whether it's buying something, whether it's... Count the cost. There's a cost of building. Take your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. We're children of God today. Can I tell you, the believer must count the cost of building. If we're going to be disciples of Christ, we need to realize it's going to cost us something. We're going to have to build something, and it's going to cost us. Notice what it says here in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. And you have therefore received Christ, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus. How did you receive Christ Jesus? By grace through faith. Grace through faith. You had to exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. You received Him by faith, you must walk by faith. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therewith with thanksgiving. He says, listen, as a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're going to truly be a disciple of Christ, you need to be prepared to pay the price of building in your life. It's going to cost you something to grow in Christ Jesus. It's not just going to happen. You're not going to just lay your head on a pillow and from some means of osmosis, you're going to just wake up and know everything about the Bible and be a great Christian for God. That's not how it works. There's a price to be paid. You're going to have to get into the Word of God. You're going to have to study the Scriptures. You have to memorize the Word. He says there's a cost, there's a price. And too many times we come to the table and we accept and receive Christ as our Savior and we have not counted the cost. And then when it comes time to start living for Jesus Christ, we find ourselves failing. Why? Because we haven't counted the cost of building in our life. And the truth is you've got to build your Christian faith. You've got to build your walk with Christ. You've got to build yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ to some degree. He hath begun a good work in you and he will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. But he won't do that without you stepping in, so to speak. You've got to take your part and do your part. 
Oh yeah, in the end, you'll be exactly what Christ wants you to be. But my friend, if you're going to accomplish what God intends you to accomplish on earth, you've got to pay the price of being built up and rooted in the Lord Jesus. Boy, I tell you what, that comes with a high price. Oh, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Not if you're not paying the price of building. Well, how much have you grown in Christ? How many more verses do you know? How much more Bible do you recognize? How much more capable are you of sharing truth with others? How are you able to comfort those that are hurting and help those that are having a difficult time in life? I can't do any of that. My friend, you need to start building. And it does come with a price. And don't think that the world doesn't look upon us when we're unwilling to pay the price, when we've started the Christian life and we don't finish it strong. Don't think they're not happily laughing at us. They're more than happy to laugh. The believer must count the cost of building. Not only that, but number two, the believer must count the cost of battling. Look at verse 31 through 33. What king going to make war against the king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. Boy, he says, listen, I'm telling you right now, there's a price to pay. There's a cost to battling in the Christian life. If you're going to be a disciple of mine, there's going to be a battle to face. How many believers have come to Jesus Christ with the mistaken thought that it's going to be better now, everything will be fine? And sadly enough, some believers that have led folks to Christ have given that impression. Let me tell you something, it will be better, but it won't make everything right, because until Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, comes back, there'll still be warfare in our lives, and there'll still be battling on earth. There won't, there'll be chaos and confusion that we have to overcome, and that will only come through Jesus being real to us personally. There's a battle to be fought. In 1 Peter 5, 8, the Bible says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Your adversary is Satan. If you know Christ as your Savior and you, you want to be a disciple, I can promise you this. He hates Jesus' guts. He's not going to love you either. He's your adversary too. The moment you come to Christ, you become Christ's property. Satan doesn't appreciate that, nor does he like it. But I'll tell you what, you don't really become too big an enemy to Satan until you decide to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I tell you what, when you make that decision, you better count the cost, my friend, because there's a cost to battling. And you know what? We, we like to be good Christians, and we want to be Christian in name for sure. But my friend, it's not enough to be a Christian in name. We need to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of the Lord Jesus. And that comes with a price tag. In 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, it says, Thou therefore endure hardness. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be, who hath chosen him to be a soldier. You've become part of the family of God. You, my friend, have been enlisted. And the truth is, there's a price to pay to be a soldier of Jesus Christ. In this particular case, he says there's going to be a need for hardness. Not hardness of heart, but just a hardness in your life. Listen, I raised girls to be women, to be ladies. But I told them, you need to be tough. 
If you're going to make it in life, you've got to be tough. You may not walk around with big old muscles and beating up boys, and I'll tell you what, I wouldn't want them to do that. Although some of them probably could. Some of you guys especially. But let me tell you this, I didn't want them to be soft because life's tough. And the Christian life is not always easy. And trouble comes to all of us. And when the fires come, I wanted them to be able to just stay strong and stay planted and not wilt. But let me tell you, Jesus is saying the same thing to you and I as his children. He's saying you got to count the cost because there's going to be hardness. And as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, you got to be hardness, endure it, deal with it, just like a soldier does in battle. And he says, no man that warth entangled himself with the affairs of this life. He's saying, don't you realize that if you're going to be in warfare, you can't be so distracted with everything else that you can't focus on the battle. It's going to be in your face. It's going to be right in front of you unless you choose to walk away from it. But if you choose to be my disciple, there'll be a cost, a price to pay, and it's the cost of battling. Notice verse 34 as we come to the last one. Again, the believer must count the cost of building. They must count the cost of battling, but the believer must count the cost of behaving. Salt is good. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Do you remember that Jesus said to us in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Unfortunately for us, the Bible also says in John 3, verse 19, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. So God, on one hand, appeals to us and he, 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 he admonishes us to be light in the dark world. And on the other hand, he says, by the way, men will always love darkness rather than light. So if they love darkness and we are light, it leads us to our natural conclusion in John chapter 15, verse 18, Turn there, would you please? We arrive at the natural conclusion then. In John chapter 15, verse 18, the Lord is speaking and he says to his disciples, if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. He's pointing out very clearly that, listen, you are to be light in the world. And the truth is, is that the world loves darkness. Don't think for some reason that you stand alone when the world doesn't appreciate your word, doesn't appreciate your actions, doesn't appreciate your deeds, doesn't appreciate your stand on truth. No, don't you be so surprised surprised about that. They didn't appreciate mine because I represented light and was light, and now you are the light of the earth, and they're not going to appreciate you any more than they did me. And as a matter of fact, they're going to hate you like they hated me. As a matter of fact, they are not going to appreciate you in the least. 
And he says, if you're going to be a disciple of mine, a follower of mine, let me remind you, you must count the cost of behaving. Because you're going to live different. You're going to be different than the world in which you live in. Your lifestyle will be different. Your attitude will be different. Your priorities will be different. Because they'll be set. They'll be placed in place by my word, my truth. You won't take your lead from the world and their philosophies and their ideology. You'll take it all from me in the word of God. And it'll be quite different than the darkness that the world is now living in. Well, there's a price to be paid, all right, if you want to be a disciple of Christ. And he says to the believers that day, as he looked over that crowd, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're really going to be a follower of me, can I say, he's not saying if you're just going to be saved. Now, now listen, I, I think we've got to be careful with that. I think it's to come to Jesus Christ and have conditions. Well, I'll get saved, but I'm never going to do anything for God. I'm never going to live for the Lord. I will never go to church. I'll never read my Bible. I'll never pray. I'm not going to give up my drinking. I'm not going to give up this. I'm not going to give up that. I'm not going to do anything. My friend, there's something wrong with that. But somebody genuinely comes to Christ, recognizes their need of a Savior, knows that they're a sinner deserving hell, and that they can do nothing to merit heaven or God's favor, and they say, Lord Jesus, I fall on my face and I humble myself before you, the God, the creator of the universe. Oh, God, forgive me. Save me and receive me unto yourself. Take me to heaven one day. I need you, and I can't do it without you. They're saved, but may I say there's another decision to make. Will you be a disciple now? Why is everything falling apart in my life? How come things aren't working out? I'm a Christian. Maybe you're not a disciple, though. Oh, I didn't say it was going to be easy to be a disciple because Jesus doesn't say that. But let me tell you, if you want to experience the real peace, the purpose, the joy, the power that comes in Christ, the contentment that you find in the Lord Jesus and the Word of God and the life itself when you apply His principles and truths, my friend, you have to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Not just a saved believer, but a follower. And there is a price to pay, though. Hey, young people, I want you to understand there's a price to pay. If you want the best God has, you're going to have to pay a price. It won't just come because you want it. This idea that now I'm safe, so God ought to bless me, that ain't how it works. Oh, you've been blessed already. If you're truly born again, you've got Christ living in you in the personal Holy Spirit. You have the ability to overcome sin in your life because he lives there. But the choice is yours how you live it. Yes. Yes. I'm telling you, it's worth paying the price. It's worth saying no to sin. It's worth saying no to a sinful lifestyle. It's worth living for Jesus Christ. But you better count the cost because the moment you say, I'm going to do it, you're going to walk out these doors and Satan's going to be on your back. And then you're going to get home and mom and dad are going to say, or grandma or grandpa are going to say, or somebody's going to say, hey, come on, let's go over here and watch this. Let's do that. And you're going to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Your friends are going to come grab you up and say, come on, man, let's go. And you're going to have to say, whoa, 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 there's a price to pay here. I counted the cost. I'm not going back. Problem is, there's not enough resolve in Christianity today. We're a bunch of just, we're just being pushed around with every wind and wave of doctrine, whatever suits our fancy, whatever's most comfortable. But man, let me tell you something. If we're going to truly make a difference for God in the world in which we live, you've got to make up your mind. You're going to 
Count the cost and pay the price. I wonder, are you willing to pay the price? You don't know until you count the cost. I want you to think. Before we speak, before we walk down to an altar and bend down and tell God we're going to do something, we need to count the cost. We need to realize if we don't follow through with our decisions, the world is looking on and they're going to laugh at us. They're going to say, your God ain't so big after all, is he? I bet you he ain't even real. He's not big enough to help you keep that commitment you even made. They'll be like, God, church, the Bible, what a joke. That's what happens when believers make a commitment to be a disciple but haven't counted the cost. And they don't follow through because things get tough. I want to encourage you to get tough. Say, I'm going to be a disciple of Christ. And I know there's a price to building my faith in the Lord Jesus. There's a price to pay to battle in this thing called the Christian life. There's a price to pay to living and behaving the way God intended me to and outlines in the Word of God. I'm going to pay the price because I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and I do not want to bring reproach on His name. Father, we come to You. We thank You, Lord, that being a disciple of Christ is well worth the investment. It's well worth the cost. You said in Romans 8, 18, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Oh, Lord, what glory awaits us if we'll just get all in. But, Lord, help us to count the cost, to be prepared for the battle, to know that it's not going to be easy. That's what the point of counting is, Lord, is to, that we can be prepared when the hard times come. We're not counted, we're not caught off guard If we think it's supposed to be easy, Lord, and then it's tough, then we'll be tempted to quit. Lord, help us to realize there's nothing easy about building our faith. There's nothing easy about battling in the Christian life. There's nothing easy about behaving the way we should. It's a battle, but it's a worthy battle, and it yields such tremendous blessings in eternity. Thank you, Lord, for the promises that you've given us, the blessings that are ours. Father, bless your people today, Lord. Help us now to make a decision to be a disciple of Christ, a follower of Jesus, and being willing to pay the price. And next time the devil comes a-fighting us, and calling, we'll not be blindsided, and we'll stand strong for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand, every head bowed, every eye closed.